This is Daniel Jeffson, and you are listening to my podcast, Your Word is a Lamp. This episode is a sermon I preached at Franklin Community Church on November 30th, 2020. It is the first in the series of the Names of Christ, and it focuses on the name Emmanuel. I hope you find it a blessing. Questions start out. What's in a name? You recall, if you've read Shakespeare, that's what uh, Juliet uttered to Romeo because his last name and her last name were getting them in trouble because of their clans were opposed. And she asked, would not a rose by any other name smell as sweet? Sure. But sometimes the name is, there is something in the name. It's more than just a verbal uh, verbal handle for someone or something, right? Some names are significant. Think of that word, significant, sign. They are a sign that points to something else, a meaning that goes beyond just the, the syllables uttered. For example, most of our names mean something, right? Uh, what, anybody want to share what your name means? Some of them I know, some of them I don't. What does your name mean, Amy? Beloved. Yeah, Gwen? Fair blessing? Great. I didn't know that one. Somebody else, what does your name mean? Ed? Ed. What's that? Proud protector. Proud protector. Great. Yeah, Alex. Or Alan, I'm sorry. <laughs> Noble. Great. Alan. Somebody else? Sometimes they don't mean uh, all that we would want them to mean, right? Um, we had a, a friend in college named Beverly, and we, uh, we found out her, we were looking at names, your background, Beverly means from the beaver meadow, and uh, <laughs> so we called her Beaverly after that. Um, but you know, when God gives a name, it's not just a wish, like we may give a name for our children, that they live up to some quality, it is a description and a prophecy. When God gives a name, he turns a Simon into a Peter, he turns a Simon into a rock. He turns Abram into Abraham, the father of many nations. When God gives a name, it is significant. There is a, it's a sign that points beyond itself. And especially how much more then when it comes to the names of his own son that he brings into this world. So we're going to look at the different names of Jesus Christ that are given to us, some names and titles. We can't look at each one because there are too many. Um, but what we want to do as we start today with the, with the name Emmanuel is to look at how it's used in the scripture and talk about its significance for us. Because each name, if we really grasp what it means, can change our lives. Let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you that we can call you that. Let's not take that for granted that we are able to call you Father because of your grace. Thank you for sending Jesus into this world. Lord, many of us have uh, been through a lot of Christmases. We've been through a lot of Advent seasons and heard lots of Advent series. But would you breathe new life into the wonder that you became man and dwelled among us? Would you do that even through these sermons, Lord? I'm aware they're not all they could be, but I pray that you would breathe life into them, please. Thank you, Father. 
Amen. All right. Hey, I do have some slides. Let me grab that, my little clicker here. The name we're going to look at today is Emmanuel. And by the way, uh, Riley and some of her friends were nice enough to make Christmas ornaments to go along with each one of these. If you did not get one of those, then I must not be on my mailing list or I just missed it somehow. But uh, we'll make that up to you. We'll have some more of those. So, Emmanuel. Now, what does this name mean? Well, I want to bring, bring this out in kind of three acts. Like, think of a, of a play with three acts going on. And the first act, which we may not be as familiar with, is actually something that happens six, 700 years before Christ. There's a prophecy. Now, let's get the context of this a bit. Let's get a context of this prophecy. The prophecy is given in about 734 B.C. It was given by the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz, the king of Judah. And the context immediately preceding this, the historical context, is the king of Israel, often called Ephraim, is threatening the kingdom of Judah. And in fact, he's allying with, uh, with Aram, or sometimes called Syria. So these two countries here are threatening this, the kingdom of Judah and the king in Jerusalem. So this is after the kingdom has been divided. So the southern part of the people of God are called Judah. The northern part are called Israel or Ephraim, because that was the most prominent tribe. And the, the southern kingdom, Judah, they wavered back and forth. Sometimes they followed God and sometimes they didn't, usually depending on what king was there. Uh, but the northern tribes went into apostasy away from God very quickly. And uh, in this particular case, the Assyrian Empire is, is becoming dominant, and Israel and Aram want Judah to join in this revolt against them, and they're actually threatening to attack them if they don't. And it says in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 2, Now the house of David was told Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So this is the context. It's a time of anxiety and fear. You've got two nations, each at least as powerful as Judah, if not more, threatening to come against it. And if they don't do this, however, you've got even more powerful kingdom, Assyria, that's going to come in on the other side. The people are shaken. God sends his prophet. He sends Isaiah. He sends Isaiah to Ahaz, and, and he, he gives him this word. Isaiah said, hear now, you word, of, you word of David now, or you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? We try the patience of God also. Now what's behind this? Why, why is God upset? Well, God had just promised him reassurance and said, ask me a sign. Ask me a sign, anything in heaven and earth, and I will give you a sign that I will take care of this problem for you because I am on your side. And, and Ahaz, you know, he gets all pious all of a sudden. No, no, I won't ask God for a sign. That, that would be, you know, that would be unspiritual and abusing God. Now, the thing of it is, that's a pretense. Uh, very often we give a pretense for not wanting to do, it, it is right not to test God in that sense, but when he offers you a sign and we refuse, that's basically a sign, or a sign that we don't want to follow him. So Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. And then this is what God responds with. All right, says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. 
the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And he will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For the boy, before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So basically the prophecy is that there will be a child coming, and before the child is probably a toddler or three or four years old will be the idea here, those two kingdoms of Aram and Ephraim or Israel will be destroyed by the kingdom of Assyria. In other words, you do not have to worry about this. What is the prophecy? What is the sign of that? Our virgin will conceive. Now wait, who is this? Well, we're not told. In the Old Testament, the word for that's translated virgin here basically just means a young woman. So it could be a bride or the wife. Most scholars think it's either the, the bride of, or the wife of Ahaz, so a royal child will come, or it is the son of Isaiah and his wife. Now, as I said, that word that the virgin will conceive and bear a child that can just mean a young woman, but there's something about this child, something about the sign that's given, and especially in the name, the name that he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now, we don't know. I suspect this was a child that uh, Isaiah's wife brought forth because later on in the next chapter, we're told Abraham or Isaiah says, here I am and my children are signs. But we do know this that God is promising that he's going to be with his people through a, this, a, a birth of a child. And somehow this child will have the special significance. And then in the very next chapter, he talks about this more in chapter 9, we have the passage that Keith and Angie read, that this child will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, King of Kings. This is the one. So you have this idea in Isaiah of this special child coming we're not given a lot of details that people didn't know. How would they have interpreted this? In their context, and here's where we have to start in order to develop the flow of this, right? We want to get what this means first. In their context, they would understand this, that this would be a special or an unusual birth somehow, but the name would mean God is with us. God is on our side. And so we don't have to worry about what's happening around us because we have someone, somebody on our side helping us. That is, I believe, the way that they would have understood this prophecy 700 years before Christ. You know what? A prophecy like that changes people, if they believe it, from shaking like the trees of the forest to setting their, their faces like flint and being strong and of good courage because they know God is with them. God is on their side. He gives them help. That is a prophecy that God gives in the midst of anxiety and fear. Now, that's the first part of what I want to bring out. The main thing I want to bring out is that the name Emmanuel should give us this kind of unshakable confidence. And for them, and how much more for us? Because the second act, the second part, is going to develop this in an even deeper way. In a way that I think Isaiah and I think all the other people of his time did not understand. In fact, the, the, the Apostle Peter, writing in 2 Peter, says that the prophets of old, they, they looked into the Scripture trying to figure out what was going on. Now, isn't that good? Because when you read the prophets, sometimes it's hard to figure out for us to know what's going on. I mean, who is this child? Who, who is this woman? Is, is this child in chapter 7 related to the one in chapter 9 and then chapter 11? We're not fleshed out the details. 
until we see how they are fleshed out in Act 2. And this is in Matthew chapter 1. So Matthew chapter 1, you can go there or I'll have it up here on the screen. And this is the second time that this is fulfilled. And here's the idea that kind of the transition of the two. God's promises are always fulfilled more deeply and more wonderfully than the people who received the promise could understand at the time. Matthew chapter 1. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, a little bit of background here. Why is she called someone who's betrothed and in other places called his wife? Let's, let's get the, the background because this will come into play later. It's a beautiful thought. You know, they did things differently back then in terms of courtship and marriage, right? Uh, we, we know how our society works that way, but we may not understand theirs. In their society, if a man, young man wanted to, saw a young woman, knew a young woman wanted to marry her, he would ask his father to arrange it with her father, get her permission, and they would set this up. So what would happen is this. The young man would indicate his, his desire, his heart. The father would go to the father of the bride, if that was also her, if she was also willing. Then the two fathers would set the, the terms of this, and including the bride price, what would be paid to the bride of the family, to the bride's family. Now, why? Well, because that bride would go to live with the husband's family. It was a, a recompense to make up for the loss that, that the woman's family would have. So, the next thing that would happen then is after this was settled, they would legally be married. So they would technically be married uh, or betrothed. But legally, though they were not living together, they hadn't slept together, they were still considered legally husband and wife. And that's the state that Mary and Joseph were in. It's in that state that he hears some unwelcome news. This woman that he is betrothed to is pregnant. You can imagine how he felt. But it says, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered all this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she had given birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Interesting. Interesting. For 700 years, this prophecy had it looked like to all the people it had been fulfilled. After all, it had to have been fulfilled through some child in the time of Ahaz, right? Ahaz would not be comforted, or the people would not be comforted by a sign 700 years in the future. There was, in the 7th century B.C., a fulfillment of this. We don't know all the details. But you know what? 
there's a deeper understanding of this prophecy. There's a deeper level of this. God always fulfills us in a deeper, more wonderful way than people could understand at the time. And so now the angel comes and applies us in a deeper way. How? Well, first of all, Mary, probably unlike the woman in Isaiah 7, is an actual virgin. We're told that very specifically in Luke 2 when the angel tells her, she says, how can this be? I've never slept with a man. They weren't ignorant of the birds and bees, by the way. They they knew this was a miracle here. And here we're we're told the same thing. And the word word used in, in Luke 2 is very specific. In the Greek language, the Greek language of the New Testament, it is used exclusively of a young woman who is also a virgin. So the first way that this prophecy is deeper and more wonderful is that this is an actual virgin birth. But the second goes far deeper. You know, I think Isaiah and his people would have understood that as God with us and the same as, you know, he's with us, he's on our side. But the prophecy goes deeper, right? Because this child will be born through the special miracle of the Holy Spirit. And this child will not only be Mary's son, but will also be the incarnation of God himself. Hebrews 1.3, the son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Jesus, all things were created, all things that have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood. Shot on the cross. Jesus himself would say, I and my Father are one. And Philippians 2 reminds us, Jesus was in the very nature God, but he did not consider that equality something to be grasped or to use for his own glorification instead. What did he do? He humbled himself and took on our humanity. And that's what the word incarnation means. Carne, flesh. God became flesh. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. I think sometimes we lose. We've heard this. We may lose the, the majesty of this. Let me see if I can visualize the, the wonder. I want you to think of this. I've used this before if you've been here a while. This terrarium as, as all of creation. Now, you hear a lot of nonsense about all religions being the same. They're not. There's very distinct differences. All the religions of the ancient Near East had this in common. They viewed their gods, and there were multitudes of them, as being within this universe. So they had powers, but they also had bodies. And sometimes they would actually fight in wars. And if you read the Odyssey, or I'm sorry, the Iliad, uh, sometimes the gods were even wounded by humans. And, uh, and so they, they were creatures within, beings within this physical universe. They just had a lot of special powers. Something like superheroes today, right? But then the Jewish people come along with God's revelation and say, no. Out of all the people in the ancient Near East, they alone said, this is how it works. There is one God, and he's not inside the box. 
He is transcendent. Another way of saying that, he is holy. He goes beyond all the limitations and sins of this world. He is not in here. He's one who brought all this into existence. It's a very radical thing then to say, first of all, this God is on our side, but even more to say, the one who is outside all creation stepped into our humanity with us. He took on flesh. That is what Emmanuel means. God is with us. Not just a sense of being on our side. That would be enough, right? He has come to be with us fully and completely. Now we understand, I don't think Mary understood at this point, but we who read the rest of the book understand that uh, he had to come in this way because only as the God-man, fully God and fully man, could he represent both God and man on the cross. There's a logic of the cross here that maybe we can't fully understand, but I think we can get the outlines. If Jesus were not fully man, he could not represent mankind fully before God. So Jesus was every bit as much of a physical man, a physical human being as you and I are, because he is the representative for humanity. But he has also had to be fully God, because as God fully is the only way that he could take our sins upon the cross. For our sins are against God, not just each other. And so only as God himself, as God's representative, but also God in the flesh, Jesus the God-man, could he fully take upon all sins and pay the penalty for them at the same time. So that is what is meant when we say that Jesus is Emmanuel. I, I heard a story that maybe kind of illustrates this a little bit. There was a, there was a man named Don Richardson, and they were missionaries to a headhunting tribe called the Sawi, and they were in the New Guinea. And this was some generations ago. And uh, he was not making much headway with this tribe. Their savagery was a way of life. The tribesmen considered headhunting and cannibalism and treachery as virtues. He read them the story of the Gospels. And they considered Judas, not Jesus, the hero. And Don almost despaired of teaching them. At last, the warfare and barbarism between the Sawi and their neighboring tribes grew so intense that the Richardsons decided to pack their bags and leave. But when the Sawi heard of it, they were deeply disturbed. They had come to love and trust the Richardsons. To prevent their, their leaving, the Sawi met in a special session and decided to make peace. The next day, as Don watched with mounting curiosity, the peace ritual began. Young children from the warring tribes were to be exchanged. And as long as any of those children were alive, the peace would continue. That was their ritual. It was an anguishing ritual, for every mother feared her child would be taken. But after a period of emotional indecision, the chief himself grabbed his only son and rushed towards the enemy tribe, literally giving the tribe to his enemies. Because that son would be his, his, the chief after him. In return, he received a son from the other side, and peace descended across the mountains. As Don pondered, the significance of the ceremony, he realized there was a powerful redemptive analogy. And shortly afterwards, gathering the elders together, he told them how God, the Heavenly Father, had sent Jesus to earth as his peace child 
to make peace between God and man. It was a message they understood and embraced at last. Isn't that a beautiful thought? This is what God has done in a far deeper way. He has come to be our Emmanuel, to be with us. Now, I'd said something here earlier I want to build upon. God's promises are always more, always fulfilled more deeply and more wonderfully than the people who received the promise could understand at the time. That was true of the people of Isaiah's time. And guess what? It is also true of us. The promise of God does not end at Bethlehem. The promise of God does not end at the cross or the empty tomb. The promise of God puts those as, as the prelude to what is to come. What is to come when God himself in the form of Jesus Christ will dwell with us. We have the promise now. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But the promise is that one day we will see him face to face. Our greatest need to be with the one who created us and formed us for a purpose will be, will be there. I love how Jesus put it here. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Now, again, what's in Jesus' mind with this, with this language? He's talking about a, a, someone, a young man who would be marrying a young woman, and during that engagement period, that betrothal period, he would go, and he would go to the Father's house where he was living, and he would add on a room to that, or sometimes a another more than just one room, but it would be attached to the Father's house. Because I'm going there to do that. Not by building this literal house. I'm going there by my, by my work on the cross. I'm making the way possible. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. This is God's heart. Revelation 21.5, last scripture we'll look at here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first had just passed away, no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, now God's dwelling place is among the people. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. What, what is this language? How does this bride become a city that comes down out of heaven? I thought we were going there, so now it's coming here. You know what? It's because we can't understand at this place how that all works out. Any more than the people of Isaiah's time could understand the incarnation. There is something beyond what we can understand. It says in, in Paul's writing, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has understood what God has in store for us. It's going to be different. But the one thing we know is that there will be a full union between us and God. That there's not that now. That is to come. We are still waiting. We are still in an Advent period for that to be here. That is a promise. And this promise, as I said, should give us unshakable confidence. And one last thing here, as we begin to wrap this up, it should also give us a transforming hope. A transforming hope. Now, remember, sometimes the Bible uses words differently than what we normally do. So we, we can think of hope, you know, some vague 
wish for the future that may or may not come true, right? I hope I get the job. Um, I hope my children are doing well. Um, you know, I, I hope no one gets sick in our family. I hope we can have Christmas as normal. I hope pastor doesn't preach too long. Um, too bad, I've got another hour to go here. Um, but it's something that may or may not come about. We want it to, but it may or may not happen. That's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. The way the Bible uses the word hope, it is something that is set and sure, but it's not here yet. But it's a hope because it's so wonderful that will change the way that we live right now. So it's not just something that's going to happen. It's a, it's a future thing that changes our lives now. I was thinking of analogies. You know, um, 36 years ago, got married. For the year before that, I was living in that kind of transforming hope. I wasn't worried that Amy wasn't going to go through with it. I, I knew who she was. But what I meant by that transforming hope, it was, it was a date on the calendar, June 14th. And I had that in my mind because I was looking forward to that day so much. But I was also letting that day change what I was doing. So, you know, I had to change some of the things I was doing up, up till then. I, I was dating a lot of supermodels, and um, I had to stop. I was a uh, cage match wrestling in the MMA, and I knew she didn't like that. So, okay. No, I, I did have to. I began to work more. I began to work more because I wanted to save up for this. For the first time in my life, I was looking at furniture and, and silverware and things like this because we were preparing a home together. And uh, she was going to come down where I was in Chattanooga to live. I was looking at garage sales for, for bedroom sets. I found one for 100 bucks. We used it for like 10 years. It's good stuff. But I was doing things I wasn't doing before because there was a date on the calendar that was drawing my heart and my mind and was changing my behavior. It was a transforming hope. Same thing happens, right? When you hear the words, you're going to be a mother, you're going to be a father. And you look at that date eight or nine months down the road and say, okay, we got to get things ready. We got to get the room ready. Maybe we got to get our finances ready. Maybe we got to do some other things. There is a date on the calendar that changes how we live now because it's glorious it's, it, and we live in that hope. That's what it means to live in Advent with the promise that God will be with us completely and fully. First John 3, we will see him as he is. That's a beautiful thought. Well, I'm going to leave you as we conclude here with one question then. Are there some things that I need to choose to believe that God is with me? He is on my side. And I can live in more confidence and less anxiety than what I have. And are there some ways that I need to let that future date on the calendar, even though I don't know when it is, transform my present. Because there is something that's coming that's so good. It changes me not because I have to, but because I want to, to be ready for that day. What would that be for you? I can think of some things in my own life. What would that be in yours? When that day comes and we see him face to face, it's not going to matter what other people thought of us. It's not going to matter how much money we had, how many titles we had, how far up the corporate ladder we were. What's going to matter? Have I prepared for this day? Have I lived in the hope that just as God has chosen to be with me, I look forward to that day when I will be with him.
This has been Your Word is a Lamp. Thank you for listening.